When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the Smoking Up Behind the Bleachers edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion here in our New York studio and on today's show, the midterm elections, I know, they're boring. We're not going to talk about Democrats and Republicans. We are, however, going to talk about pot smokers who managed to pass marijuana referendums in Alaska, Oregon, Washington, D.C., and Guam. We'll look at the rise of legal weed. What does it mean for the price of marijuana, for the future of the smoking business? And private funding for public schools. When you write some checks for your kid's school, are you really just entrenching the advantage that rich kids have over poor kids? And, of course, because this is Slate, we can't possibly go an entire podcast without talking about Taylor Swift. We are going to talk about her fight with Spotify. What does this mean for the rise of streaming music? And, of course, the numbers round. But, first, let me introduce my regular guests. We have Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. And Slate's own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Felix, I just want to ask why we would want to go an episode without talking about Taylor Swift. I feel like that would be a bad episode. (laughs) Well, I mean, it would be okay if you talked about Katy Perry, but we will come on to that in about 15 minutes or so. Because first of all, uh, you, Jordan, are going to talk to us about marijuana. Yeah, so, again, midterms happened. Uh, Kathy and I couldn't bear to talk about the main results. I don't think we would be able to keep keep ourselves from crying by the end of the episode. However, good news. Uh, There were marijuana referendums, as Felix said, passed. Legalization referendums passed in Alaska, in Oregon, and uh, Guam, and Washington, D.C. In Oregon and Alaska, they're kind of imitating what's been done in uh, Washington State and Colorado, where it's a full 
uh, legalize and regulation scheme, sort of the way they do with alcohol. Uh, in D.C., it's something a bit different. Uh, they are decriminalizing and saying that you can grow plants and share with your friends, but they're not trying to set up a whole the infrastructure for a whole weed industry. Uh, the bigger picture story here is that marijuana is on the march. Legalization is gaining steam. Uh, in a couple of years, we're going to be looking at referendums again in California and other states. Uh, and it's a little bit difficult to imagine the federal government, even under a Republican presidency, pushing back on this. You have to remember, Colorado is a very, very competitive purple state. Uh, Alaska elects Republicans, uh, but it is competitive, too. It's not the kind of issue that uh, that a Republican president or a future you know, Hillary Clinton in the White House would really want to uh, turn off too many voters over, I think. This is about so, freedom. Man. It is, it is about, about freedom. freedom. It taps into that libertarian streak um, in the Republican Party, the ascendant libertarian streak, according to some. And so assuming, let's assume that this trend continues— what I think we all want to talk about is what will this do to the price of marijuana if legalization... Can I get high for less money than I'm spending right now? Not that I'm spending any money right now because it's still not legal in New York. Of course not. Well, it's, kind of, it's decriminalized. I can still... If, if, I, if I have a bad back, I can smoke up in New York now, right? Well, there's, they're, they're sort of... Yeah, we're, we're moving towards medical marijuana in New York. But yeah, so can you... Will you get higher for cheaper? Well, That's... okay. So first of all, there, there's arguments both that it'll become more expensive when it's legalized and that it'll become less expensive now that it's legalized. That's the perfect economist's answer. <laughs> yeah. Well done, Kathy. It's like right. one one person with two diametrically opposed opinions. And I'm convinced by both of them, which is even worse. But I, before we go there, and I just want to start with the dumbest possible point I could make, which is I heard people arguing about whether people will stop smoking. Now that it's legal, it'll lose its allure. Who did you hear arguing I heard that, that last night on um on a radio station I will not mention. Okay. Um, and I'm just like, no, people... That's, that I think I can I can honestly argue is going to go one direction. Directionally, people will smoke more now that it's legal. So demand is going to go up. I think so. So normally when demand goes up, the price goes up. But we can be pretty sure that supply is going to go up as well, right? Well, supply is going to go up because more people are going to be like, oh, I can do this and I won't get in trouble. So the risk will go down. But on the other hand, other things go up. So you've already seen in Colorado where it's been legal for some time that there's lots of taxes attached to it. In fact, I, I've heard that because of certain systems of tax, um, the actual business taxes are higher if you're in a marijuana business than in other businesses. I don't know the details of Discrimination. that. Discrimination. Well, it's, it's also one of my favorite things, which is sin taxes. One of the other things that passed in the midterm elections was sugary drinks tax in Berkeley, California. Um, so you, now if you want to buy a Diet Coke in Berkeley, it's going to be cheaper than a full sugar Coke. And that is an attempt to bring down the cost of the government, cost to the government of treating obesity and diabetes and these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So in general, it's a good idea to tax the things you want less of. So that would be alcohol, smoking, sugar, that kind of thing. And it makes perfect sense if you're going to legalize marijuana to tax it as well. Yeah. And it, there's more There's more in that direction, which is liability. Like once people actually sell it sort of officially, they, they're, they're liable for people getting sick from it, which is something that people who sell it on the street illegally don't have to worry about. So that's going to be a cost to the people who actually sell it. There is going to be a whole new regulatory superstructure surrounding the marijuana industry, and regulatory superstructures don't come cheap. No, they don't. I, I think there are, there are at least three factors you kind of have to consider when, when a state's trying to figure out essentially how much they want to tax marijuana, because 
one of the things you have to realize is that marijuana, the product itself, is extremely, extremely cheap to farm. It's dirt cheap. I mean, all of the price is going to be on marketing, on profits for the companies, on taxes, things along those lines. So the government is going to play a big role in setting the price of this product. One thing it has to consider is, of course, how much revenue does it want to make off of this? That's part of it. And taxes are going to determine a demand and also just you know how much they get per ounce sold. On top of that, they have to decide how much do they actually want people to use this. Uh, do they want to make it expensive enough to discourage some poorer people from using, for instance? Um, and then beyond that, uh, do they want? Uh, and then beyond that, how expensive do they want to make it? Um, knowing that the pricier it is, the more likely the black market is going to stick around. How much? does marijuana have to sell for? How low does it have to sell for to put the black market out of business? Right. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really hard question to answer because I don't think any of us really know what the break-even price of marijuana is for like a Mexican cartel. Um, oh, but we do have one thing, which yeah. is priceofweed.com, a, a website I found <laughs> yesterday. This is, by the way, not our sponsor for the episode. <laughs> I just like to, I want to make absolutely clear. I wish I wish there was some way to, I, I wish I had had forethought and started scraping this website like four years ago so I could really see how like the um, crowdsourced price of weed across the country has changed over time. But but yeah, I think that's the first thing you should do when you get back home today is fire up import.io, which is my <laughs> new favorite website, and start creating an API for priceofweed.com and getting a data series here. I think it's a fascinating idea. Um, the, the verdict is you probably would guess is that marijuana is cheaper basically on the west coast and on the east coast and it's cheaper in america than in europe um but the the hope i mean if anything really great is going to come from this uh it it is surely that we are going to significantly reduce the amount that the amount of demand for mexican marijuana and thereby reduce some of the horrible evil dreadful crime and murders that's going on in mexico right now Absolutely. I think that's that's been an argument on, on behalf of uh, legalization advocates for a long time. One of the counter arguments you're now hearing from the drug warrior side is that we're about to face the rise of big weed, of big marijuana, that even the tobacco companies themselves, once it's legalized and banking is, you know, kind of normalized and all that, are going to get in on this business. And the more large corporations are involved, the more you're going to see it marketed to kids or whatnot. Um I want to. I actually think the opposite. I think it's good if big corporations get involved because it's easier. Because already big tobacco is so highly regulated, we know we can regulate these companies. Although I have to say that one issue which we haven't touched on yet is the the potency issue. That's like a regulatory knob that they can. What they can one turn. of the problems is that a lot of the taxes which are being introduced right now are taxes per ounce of yeah. marijuana rather than taxes per like degree of THC. And so that gives people an incentive to create ever more potent strains. And that's dangerous. And it's also expensive. I mean, you say that growing marijuana is cheap, but growing extremely potent marijuana is actually more expensive in terms of energy costs. At the end of the day, though, I mean, because of the way it's worked historically, it's it's, you're never going to have like the Philip Morris like taking over the pot industry because there's always going to be people who know how to grow pot in their backyard. So it's not you know you're not going <laughs> to see it's not going to be exactly the same. No, that's true. I mean, pot farming is is a lot less hazardous for your health than tobacco farming, for instance. Um, and, and I feel that you know if we if we're to- talking about coffee shops in the sort of Amsterdam sense right here, but also in the hipster New York sense, people are going to want to go to their sort of artisanal coffee shop 
supplier rather than to Philip Morris. I, I 100% agree with that. I actually, my, my feeling is it's probably going to look a lot more like the modern beer industry. You're going to have like craft weed growers essentially, uh, as opposed, and then you'll have the big guys, and then you'll have sort of the artisanal producers, like Felix says. And Portland. And Portland. <laughs> Portland. <laughs> all right. So um, the one thing we, we, we can all agree on, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced, is that we do need to stop young kids from smoking marijuana because then they'll just never learn anything. This is, <laughs> this is the one thing that I learned when I was at school is that the potheads really did never learn anything. Um, that's my segue, Kathy. Oh, here's another Kathy. segue. When I went to high school in Lexington, Massachusetts, it was voted. Um, it was featured in, I think, the New York Times as the most drug-ridden high school in the country. Wow. Um, which... I can attest to. Um, so now I'm going to talk about um, public school funding. Um, and so I, I like to quote my friend Suresh Naidu, who's an economist at Columbia. He says, there is no public school system in this country. There's just private schools and the housing market. Um, and by which he means that you have you have like almost half of the funding for public schools actually coming from local taxes. So if you're in a rich neighborhood or a rich town, the public schools get a lot more money than the schools in, in, a, in a less affluent location. Well, people have realized that and they sort of um, affluent people who care about education actually have moved to um, schools that are good and have high taxes. And so this is kind of a feedback loop, which has increased. So the the big picture here is that poor kids get a worse education. Mm -hmm. And this is exacerbated by the fact that schools are funded from property taxes. And so what happens is you get a vicious cycle where inequality is increased as you get property prices going up. And then the people who can afford a good education which means being able to afford an expensive house, move into those neighborhoods, and that just means that you get more ghettoized sort of poor schools. There's a new permutation of this that is sort of on the rise now, which is some states have tried to even things out, distributing you know property taxes or funding around the state's schools to try and be a little bit more egalitarian. And some wealthier communities have responded by starting charities. They've started essentially nonprofits that then donate that they donate to and then donate to the local public schools so that they manage to cut out the poor kids, basically, essentially. So they can donate. Yeah, rather they they can just give straight to the it, kids. It's a school. charity for the rich. Yeah. And so the reason why on the one hand, you can kind of understand that the there's a rationale and it's, it's understandable. You want to give your kid the best possible education. On the other hand, they're essentially getting a tax break to pay for their kids' semi-private education. Well, that's one reason. I mean, and the tax break is kind of outrageous that you can live in, you know, Coronado, California and, and pay $1,500 for your kid. And it's a charity, so-called, for tax purposes. So you get all this money back for it. But, you know, it's going straight to your kids and the kids in that school system in any case. Um, and, you know, it's very uneven. Um, uh, not all states have tried to equalize the funding, mm -hmm. um, but even in the states that have tried to equalize funding, it's not always true that you know the richer towns get together and build these, um, they build these charities, these trusts. But sometimes they have, and, and it's gotten up to the point of thirty four hundred dollars per student in some districts, which is absolutely crazy. The so, so the yeah. big picture here is that what used to be a bright line between private education and public education is no longer a bright line. Now we have this kind of spectrum and you fall somewhere on the spectrum and the richer your neighborhood, the closer you're getting to what is a de facto private education, even if it, there's a bunch of money going into it. And I'm going to ask you, Kathy, is this actually a bad thing? Well, it exacerbates inequality. Um, if you think inequality is a bad thing, you probably think this is a bad thing. On the other hand, it's really hard to see how to stop it. 
Um, I'm not saying that there's some e- easy way to stop it. I think that probably... The- but aren't, I mean, aren't what we're really doing here is bringing some of the extra money that was previously confined to a relatively small number of private schools and increasing that money and bringing it into the public school system. So, yes, what we're doing is increasing inequality, but we're also increasing the total amount of money going to educate our kids. Okay, no. I'll push back on that in the sense that what it's really doing is it's allowing certain public school systems that have rich parents involved from living in reality. So in other words, you're spending all this extra money, you're collecting all this money from rich parents because you don't want to lose your music program, right? But what if you actually lost your music program because everybody else has lost their music program? Then the the voters might say, you know what, we need to actually pay for music programs. So what you're doing is you're just changing it for you, but you're ignoring the problem for other people. That's an interesting point, and I think it, it really does... Uh... It is a nice counter argument to what Felix is saying, that this might keep parents involved in the public schools um, or at least attached to them. However, the amount of funding we're seeing is still relatively minor. There are some extreme examples like you cited, but it's not like every wealthy school district in America is doing this and, and pumping vast sums in this way. They, right. they do still have to care somewhat about the amount of money that's being that's going into the public schools just from regular taxing. That's right. It's actually only 1% of total funding, yeah. and the, but it's unevenly distributed, as we said. I, my real feeling about this is that you know, we have historical reasons that we underfund public schools. And the historical reason, the biggest one is that we used to have women who are really competent only have the options of either being secretaries or teachers. So we had these like uber competent women teaching and we don't expect to pay good salaries for that because it was kind of an entrapment. And now now we need actually to spend more money, but it, we're trying to avoid that political reality, which is a difficult thing to face because it's much more expensive than we want it to be. So what you're saying is that Public education is a little bit like um, university education. Everyone says that the reason why university education is becoming so much more expensive and we have so much inflation is because it costs a lot more to get the qualified teachers and white-collar professionals who do it. If that's the case in public education as well, then what we need is for public school funding to be outpacing inflation. That's politically very difficult to do, and so the gap is being filled with people just reaching into their own pockets. And that's okay if you're a middle class community where you can afford to reach into your own pockets, but it does leave a lot of people behind. I agree with almost all that, although I'd also like to throw in that we are also spending an awful lot of money on um, testing and, you know, in, in, in public education, which we could be diverting to, like, music programs. Um, <laughs> you know, just, I mean, the, there is a real connection between this problem and the No Child Left Behind testing culture. The rhetoric behind the No Child Left Behind was to close the achievement gap. And so the new sort of generation, the Janet Yellen generation, is like, you know what we need to close the achievement gap is more money for poorer schools. And yet, so long as most education is funded locally, there's just no way for a poor neighborhood, for a poor city to fund its schools adequately. They just don't have the tax base. That's right. (sighs) But let's leave that behind and move on to something much more enjoyable, which is Taylor Swift. Let's not talk about her new album too much. Because I think we'll leave that to the culture gab fest. They're having big fights over there. As uh, they should. As they should. For any important piece of what know, we art. what we care about is the is the 
business and economics here, and the economics are astonishing. She, as Tracy Samuelson predicted last week, sold an absolutely insane number of copies of her album in the first week, 1.3 million, which is no other album released in 2014 has reached that at all. She did it in one week. So this is this is impressive. And as part of this huge sales drive, or maybe just because she's ideological about such things, or maybe because her the CEO of her record label wants to sell, or there's any number of reasons why, she wound up pulling all of her songs, not just 1989, but every single previous album from Spotify. Now, I have opinions on this, but Jordan, I'm sure you want to say something first. Yeah, I mean, she's in a unique position to do such a thing. Um, and there are very few artists who feel like they have the bargaining power and the, the sheer obsessive fan, sheerly obsessive fan base that they can just pull their music from a major, major channel and say, you have to buy the album. I'm not even worried about you pirating this album. Um, so this is, in one respect, a testimony to Taylor Swift's unique position in the record industry. She might be matched by Beyonce, maybe in this respect. You know, Beyonce also did not debut her album on Spotify. I don't think her last one is on it yet. Is it, Felix? I it's not. But so there are a select there are a select handful of artists who can do this, who can say no to streaming, even though that seems like the fra- th- that seems like it's overall the future of the industry. And this creates a really everything else tension. in the industry is growing. Downloads have been shrinking quite fast, about 15 yeah. percent. Um, streaming is more than making up for that. So the growth of streaming is clearly the future of the music industry. It's way more convenient to be able to just call up any album you want on your phone than trying to store a whole bunch of MP3 files locally and move them around all your different devices and try and work out which ones you own and which ones you don't. And so I think streaming is the future. But there are going to be, as you say, idiosyncratic instances where individuals can pull their So, Felix, I I saw your Medium piece yesterday uh, in praise of Oligopoly, and this is related to this. I'm kind of confused. Please explain it to me. Like, Oligopoly is basically when a few players control a market, and usually that's bad for consumers. Could you explain why this is good for consumers? So, the music industry is dominated by three major labels, Sony, Universal, Warner. They control almost everything. Now, importantly, in, when I say almost everything, I mean almost everything but not Taylor Swift. She owns her own record label or has a very large stake in it. So she can do things which most artists can't do. And the Beatles are exactly the same. But if you're a recording artist these days, there is an overwhelming probability that you are signed with one of those three major labels. And what that means is that if I'm Spotify or any other streaming service, Rhapsody or Beats or anyone, I can do a deal with three major record labels. And if I do a deal with those three, then everything else falls into place. I can say, you know what? I have everything or nearest damn it. So that's really good for consumers because that means that the consumers then have a really easy value proposition for one regular monthly subscription, you get everything. It's the exact opposite of what we see with, say, streaming movies, where there are a gazillion different movie streaming services. They all have different movies. You can never work out where the movie you want to see is. The inventory is changing from day to day, and it's a complete mess, and it's just not consumer-friendly. So it's good when you can just do a deal with a couple of 
with, with literally three big majors. If you had, as if the streaming services like Spotify had to negotiate with thousands of independent record labels, they could never do that. Okay, but well, let me let me ask another question. And this yeah. is, I don't really have an opinion about Taylor Swift herself, but I do care very much about musicians because I'm a singer songwriter fan. And what I'm worried about is that it's good for consumers in the in the here and now, but is it good for music? Like, we do actually want there to be a vibrant and a lively music scene. And how is that going to work out if streaming services are big and they don't pay the, the musicians? Well, who's saying they don't pay the musicians? They do pay the musicians. And if you, if you do the math, the average American spends about $40 a year on recorded music. Uh, Spotify's subscription is $120 a year. If we have Americans paying $120 a year rather than $40 a year because they get more convenience from streaming than they do from buying, that's three times as much money going to the music industry and going to musicians than we had before. So there is this theory that people earn, that musicians in particular, earn less money from streaming music than they do from selling CDs. And that's probably true on a sort of case-by-case basis. But if you look in the aggregate, if we're moving to the world which I think we're moving to, I'm not convinced that this actually means less money for musicians. So I, I tend to agree with you on that front, Felix. And, and one of the uh, interesting statistics that Spotify now says that when they get to about 40 million worldwide users, I believe they're they're, they're at 50 million now. Is it 50? It's it, well over 40, yes. Uh, is, uh, I apologize then if I've gotten the benchmark wrong, but essentially they're approaching the same amount of revenue as iTunes. They're, they're getting there. So, I mean, there is real money going into streaming at this point. So, I do well, think. you can do the math. Yeah. They have about 10 million yeah. paying subscribers. Yeah. They, they reached that back in May. 10 yeah. million times $120 a year is actually more than that in Europe. Yeah. is, what, $1.2 billion. We're talking real money yeah. here. I want to go back to Felix's essay, though, because there, there, there were some points in it that I agreed with, that I disagreed with, but overall I thought it was very interesting. One thing you say is that one of the problems for record labels is they don't do anything really anymore. I disagree with that. They play an extremely important role in breaking artists still. It's hard to get the promotion you need to really break out into a national star if you're with an indie. Who they don't really do anything for anymore, you're right, is Taylor Swift, is Beyonce are the superstars. Um, so they're sort of, they, they're, they don't do much for the really small guys, but they do, do play an important role for the kind of middle of the pack. Right. So, that's, so that, that's the thing which I was fretting yeah. about in yeah. my article, is that right now we're living in this kind of utopian world where everyone is one, on one of the three majors and Spotify and Rhapsody can say we have everything. What I fear is that we're moving into a world where it makes sense for Jay-Z and for Taylor Swift and for Katy Perry to set up on their own and or, and this is even a little bit scarier, sign with Spotify. Spotify could actually become a label themselves and say, hey, we will pay you, Beyonce, some mind-blowing amount of money to only be on Spotify. And... That would just upend the value proposition more generally. Right now, you have this wonderful thing called most favored nation clauses, which basically means that you can have very low, surprisingly low barriers to entry in the streaming music industry. You can set up your own streaming music company and basically just get the same deal that everyone else is getting. But if you if you start having artists sign with individual streaming companies, all that goes out the window. I I, I want to say there there is another. Uh, 
kind of unknown here, which is whether Spotify itself can ever make a profit or any of these streaming services can make a profit while paying a reasonable amount to artists, let's say. Right now, Spotify says it spends 70% of its revenue uh, or gives back 70% of its revenue to labels and artists. And it's not making money right now. There are some people who think it can never make money. And so there's, there is a, a contingent of people who think that essentially what's going to happen is streaming services will sort of become nice loss leaders for the Amazons, for Google, for Apple, um, as they try to attract more users to their larger ecosystem of and that's, services. Again, that, and that would be good for both artists and consumers, right? It could be, although I don't know how good it is for artists if their whole industry is looked on as a giant loss leader for Apple or for Google. I'm a little worried about – there's something about that, that uh, potential, potential scenario that, that bothers me. I don't know. If I'm an artist and, and the company is saying, we're paying you so much money that we're actually losing money on everything we sell, I'm like, that's good. <laughs> that that's is good like old-fashioned, in fact. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but <laughs> patronage. Anyway, enough of Taylor Swift. Jordan, what is your number this week? My number's a little bit boring. It's 1%, but it's a new twist. In the midterm exit polls, 1% of Americans said they thought the economy was excellent. Uh, this is some obviously ironic for all the reasons I don't have to go into. <laughs> However, it's actually even more interesting than, than you initially think because the midterm elector was actually older and whiter than, than the rest of America, than average, meaning it was probably also richer. So only 1% of this particularly rich slice of the country thinks that the economy is in uh, decent shape. I have to go next. Or excellent shape. Well, I mean, I, I, just, I just think that if you ask a large number of people whether the economy is excellent, you're always going to find 1% of them saying yes, because they have no, it's just statistical (laughs) noise, really. Yeah, but it's just so great that was the number they landed on. Anyway. So yeah, this is quite related. Um, So my number is four. So basically, the number is that uh, the bottom 90% used to have four times the wealth of the top 0.1% in 1986. Um, And now it's got the same, same amount of wealth for the bottom 90% and the top 0.1%. And uh, so that that's recent work by Emmanuel Saez of the University of California, Berkeley, and Gabriel Zuckman of the London School of Economics. You might recognize Saez's name. He worked with Piketty on the wealth statistics. Although, so- although I have to add in my standard sort of statistics warning here as well, which is that it makes no sense to add up the wealth of the poor because poor people don't have wealth. It's very useful to look at incomes for poor people, looking at wealth for poor people, especially if what you're doing is assigning a negative number to people with negative wealth, then what you can do is wind up saying that basically my five-year-old niece has more money than the bottom 50% of the population. I totally agree. So you can think of the first 50% as net zero. And when I say the bottom 90%, I'm really talking about 50% tile to the 90th percentile, which is the middle class, what we think of as the middle class. So you're comparing the middle class wealth to the top 0.1%, and they're now equal. That is a meaningful number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to finish on a political note because we had a that pretty interesting... That wasn't political enough right there. No, that, was, that, was, it, that was just like, you know, ideological. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, talking, I'm, I'm talking about party politics now. Oh, okay. okay. Um, we had a very interesting discussion a few weeks ago about the Scottish independence referendum, which lost. There was a relatively decisive vote against Scottish independence. But now... A new poll has come out. We're going to have elections. When I say we, I mean we Brits are going to have elections in in Britain next year, a general election. And 
in a general election, every single seat comes up. And it looks as though there could be a massive, massive change in British electoral politics and specifically in Scottish electoral politics. Um, Historically, Scotland was a pretty conservative nation and it would elect conservatives. That was back in the sort of 50s. In recent decades, the Tories have been wiped out. They got basically wiped out in 1997 and never came back. And now it's a Labour country. The Labour Party, the core of the Labour Party is is Scottish in many ways. And one of the reasons why I didn't want Scottish independence was because it would basically mean a Tory majority in England. Now, what's fascinating and a little bit scary to me is that according to this latest Ipsos poll, 54 of the 59 seats in Scotland could go to the SNP, to, could go to the Scottish nationalists. That having failed to get actual independence, they are going to just send a shed load of Scottish nationalists down to London, <laughs> um, to, to Parliament. And that could devastate the Labour Party and the chances of any kind of Labour government in Britain. I think this is absolutely fascinating. So you basically have the same result anyway. Well, a similar. What well, question though? So, if you have all these Scott, wouldn't wouldn't they team up with the Labour Party? I mean, wouldn't they basic? Wouldn't they have an alliance, or who would they? Would they just sit there on their own and saying we're not going to help anyone? What, we're, not voting, of, we're not voting with anybody. One of the interesting things which a lot of American observers of Scottish independence didn't understand is that the Scottish National Party is actually surprisingly right wing. Scotland, as I say, is a conservative with a small c country in many ways. It believes in social liberalism, but it's also quite conservative. And I can easily see the SNP forming an alliance with the conservatives rather than with Labour. But electoral politics in Britain is now very, very interesting for, you know, wholly new reasons. And are they legalizing pot over there, too? Uh, Well, where I my, my home borough of Lambeth in London has decriminalized marijuana for a long time. Um, this is this is old news to most Europeans, especially as you would know from your last trip to Amsterdam. That's right. <laughs> anyway, that's about it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening to Slate Money. If you liked the show, please subscribe in the iTunes store and help us spread the word by leaving a review or just telling your friends and do keep on writing to us with your comments and complaints and complaints about no links on the website because we listen to those ones or anything else the address is slatemoney at slate.com the producer for Slate Money this week is Joel Meyer the executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers for Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman I'm Felix Salmon until next week Hello, I'm Allison Benedict, co-host of Slate's parenting podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting. On this week's show, we're talking about teens and phones, when kids should get them, what they do with them, and how much parents should freak out about them. Please search for Mom and Dad are Fighting on iTunes or visit slate.com slash podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.